for leading us. Should we open the scriptures into Second Timothy? We'll continue on in our series where we uh, left off. And I'll see the pictures already up on the screen for you to have some indication as to what this text is all about. But let us read together the the scripture before us. We'll commence at verse 8 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. And this is what the word of God says. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Trust God will add a blessing uh, to his word this morning. You see a cyclist up on the screen, and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about cycling, and I was, of course my mind was taken to the, the great annual Santos Tour Down Under cycle race that's held in Adelaide each year, which you will all be familiar with. Those are from Adelaide anyway, and it's become a big thing for South Australia and particularly the city of Adelaide. And certain stages of this race, I'm not a cyclist myself, all I am, but one with a lot of horsepower in the motor. Um, When we think of this tour down under, there are certain stages of this race that test the endurance of the cyclist to the max, especially when the temperature is 38 degrees plus and they begin their gruelling Willunga Hill section. And I might say even my motorbike is down under fourth gear going up Willunga Hill, if you know where Willunga Hill is. So fitness and endurance and sheer stamina by these cyclists is all on display as the cyclists dig in and pile up kilometre after kilometre, they endure the pain, they suck in the big ones, ignoring the temptation to slow down and ease up. They just keep on going. They keep on digging in, knowing that the true test of any rider is not about how they begin the race, but how they end or how they finish. They know that this race or their races are all about the long haul, about their ability to endure to the end. And as believers, we too are in this race, not cyclists, but we're in the Christian race, right? And the question I put to you at this point is, how are we enduring in the race that God has called us into? that we have qualified to enter. In other words, will you be faithful through all the hardships, all the temptations, all the trials, even unto death if need be? Will you endure? You see, like the 
down under cycle race, being a true follower of Jesus Christ is not about how we begin so much, but how we endure to the end. After all, we all want to say with the Apostle Paul as he thought about his own death, even right at this time when he wrote this letter in 2 Timothy 4.7, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. What a testimony. Now we all want to say that, right? We all want to be able to say that. But we need to understand that even though God promises to keep all those he saves, as we have just sung, The Lord has called us into this race, but it also demands that we dig in and we take up the cross of Jesus Christ and we jure to the end for his glory. It demands that of us. So like Timothy, Paul calls us as well to endure hardship, as we have looked back in prior sections, we're to endure hardship, and he gives us these wonderful metaphors in the section prior to this, as as good soldiers. And we're to be disciplined like, like athletes. And we're to be like the hard-working farmer in verses 3 to 7 of this chapter. And it was at this stage that Timothy may well have asked the question. He may have. I'm not saying he has, but he may well have asked the question, why should I? Remember, Timothy was under the pump. Timothy was a timid man probably in his mid-thirties. And he was feeling the pressure of culture and false teachers. And he had health issues. And as we might say, things were getting pretty hairy for Timothy as a pastor in Ephesus. And so he could well have asked, well, why should I endure? Why should I stand firm? And it may be the same question you're asking yourself right now. And amidst all the circumstances of life and all the ups and downs, and sometimes people seem to have a lot more downs than they have ups, as it were. You could be asking, why should I commit myself to such a demanding lifestyle, such a difficult and unknown path, when I can choose to take an easier route, a less committed pathway? Why should I endure in the Christian race? Well, here Paul gives Timothy and all of us the answer to those kind of questions if we're asking them. He gives us, I believe, four reasons or four motives for why we need to persevere in the Christian race that God has called us to, even when we may feel like dropping out and taking it easy. And so the first one is to endure hardship. We are to remember... Jesus Christ. We have to remember Jesus Christ. We see this in verse 8. And carrying on the analogy of athletes, many athletes rise to the top of their game, as it were, not because they're the strongest, not because they're the fittest, not because they've done the most training, not necessarily. It so often comes down to someone in their lives motivating them and inspiring them, someone perhaps they value greatly, that person often becomes the driving force behind their success in the athletic field. You often hear stories of successful athletes having maybe parents 
or maybe some other sporting hero in their life, or maybe even a loved one who has passed away, or or an inspiring coach who motivates them to go the distance. This so often can be the case behind many successful athletes. Well, Paul tells Timothy and all of his readers, including us here this morning, that we as Christians have someone that we need to look to. Someone that we need to look to for our inspiration and for our motivation, especially when the going gets tough. And the, t- and the going can get tough at times, right? Some of you are experiencing that right now, I know. He commands us here, and this is in the imperative form. This remember, in other words, it's not an option, it's a command. It's in the imperative form. He says, remember Jesus Christ. This is the main verb, can we say, if you're interested in the, the details of this, of this word. It's the main verb, actually, which the whole section that we have read this morning hangs upon. Just like we've read earlier, the main verbs were in verse um, 8, verse 1, be strong of this chapter. And then we had a little bit later on, we saw entrust, in other words, another command in verse 2, and consider in verse 7. They're all verbs that there's a lot of truth hangs upon. And so this command to remember in verse 8 is paramount for the believer to have believed and to obey. Paramount. It's not an option to consider, but a command to obey in order to endure and live a faithful, God-honoring life. Remember Jesus Christ. Now, that may sound like a strange command given especially to a pastor, right? You think of Timothy. It may sound a strange command that Paul gives all his readers, even some of us here this morning, especially some of us who have been on the Christian race and in the Christian race for many, many years. Must have had lots of experience, and some of us have had ups and downs. It may sound like a strange command. But as I said before, Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus, was feeling the pinch. He was experiencing extreme pressure from cultural whims. He was under the pump with religious teachers and false teachers breathing down his back. And persecution was right there, threatening him. He was, as it were, considering a rest stop halfway up Wollonga Hill. Now, folks, we all have these kinds of times in our Christian lives, right? We all do. We want to have a rest, ease up, and even worse. The going can get really tough when everything seems to be against us and we just want to give up, we want to back off and usually at the end of those experiences we cry, woe is me, because usually it's all about me. And so this is where Timothy was. This is, Timothy was facing tough times and so Paul, the veteran apostle, commands him and commands us to remember Jesus Christ. That is always to remember that's what this word remember has it is a continuing sense it's not okay remember him once and then just carry on it's an ongoing remembrance that word carries that idea it could be correctly translated keep on remembering him but why does he command that why does he command that please notice the order of the lord's title here it does not say christ jesus 
but Jesus Christ. And when we see Jesus Christ, it always calls attention to the Lord's humanity. In other words, it calls attention to the Lord's suffering, his walk, his example, his enduring to the end to Calvary itself in that he despised the shame that was heaped upon him on the cross of shame. In other words, Jesus Christ is our supreme and distinguished example. For us to remember, because as we remember him as our example, we can be motivated and inspired in this life of ups and downs. Why? Verses 1 to 7 tells us. Why is he our example? Because we looked at last time we were together. Because we learned that uh, as we are to be a good soldier and an athlete and a, and a hard-working farmer, because Jesus Christ was the greatest athlete, so to speak, the greatest soldier, and he was the greatest farmer. In his humanity, he won the greatest victories and endured and won the greatest race to receive the greatest prize, right? That's our Lord, folks. That's our Lord. He suffered the cross before he received the crown. His path to glory was marked with humiliation and sorrow before it was ever marked with exaltation. That's why we need to remember Jesus Christ. That's why he needs to be forever preeminent in our hearts and minds to inspire and to motivate us in our daily living. Paul's point here, by the way, is the same as the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Same idea. So let us remember Jesus Christ. Then Paul adds to this by giving a second reason why we need to remember Jesus Christ and that he was raised from the dead, or more literally, having been raised from the dead. Having been raised from the dead. And so Paul, of course, as we know, majors on this wonderful truth in the Corinthian letter where the whole doctrine of the gospel hangs upon the truth that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 14 and 17, if Christ is not risen, our faith is worthless. Everything hangs on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And because he has risen from the dead, he promises that those who believe in Jesus Christ will have resurrection victory over the grave as well. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? So even if we suffer and die for the sake of the gospel or, or whenever the Lord calls us home through the valley of the shadow of death, we can look upon death as just being a bend in the road, as it were, a bend in the road or a bend in the road race. Death for a believer becomes a reality. It becomes a reality of the glorious eternal hope we have in the risen Jesus Christ. Why? Simply this, because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is the grounds of our hope that the risen Lord is. Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. And so we the church, the blood-bought saints of God, those who personally trust the risen Jesus Christ, the saving Lord, are already enrolled in heaven, folks. Are already enrolled in heaven. And because of this profound truth, 
we can stand firm. We can keep on keeping on. We can and need go the distance. We must endure to the end of the race that God has set before us. Remember Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. A third aspect that we need to remember about Jesus Christ is that of his royalty and majesty. And this is all wrapped up in that little term, he's a descendant of David. You see that there? He's a descendant of David. Now this may sound historically distant, especially when we bring King David back into the picture, down to our modern day or even in in, uh, Timothy's day. But this historic description is not unique here. It's mentioned over and over, right in the Old Testament and right into the New Testament. It validates for us that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah or the Christ, the sent one, who was promised to be the seed of David. That was always the big deal when Jesus Christ walked this earth. Was he the Messiah or wasn't he? And even all the religious Jews refused to acknowledge and recognize him as that. His whole life, Jesus' three and a half years of ministry was clearly validating that he was. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecies by healing the sick and causing the the blind to see and and the dumb to speak and the deaf to hear, etc. But they didn't acknowledge and accept him. But for us, we should not only remember Jesus Christ and his humanity as Saviour who became a merciful and a faithful high priest, as we have already looked at and thought about this morning, who in every point was tested, such as we, according to Hebrews 4.15, but also to see and remember him for his royalty and majesty. You see, even before the conception of the Lord Jesus, it was promised to Mary. This is what it says in Luke 1.32-33. He, that is Speaking of Jesus Christ, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. There you have it. So not only do we remember Jesus Christ as a suffering servant, we remember him as one who will return as the conquering king who will reign on David's throne, ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 verse 9. We looked at that even last Sunday. We remember him for who and what he will be and do. So the application here for Timothy and for us is since Jesus Christ is our divine saviour and sovereign Lord, why on earth should we be taken up with worry and dare even think about dropping out of the race when he is coming back to reign as king and king and lords of lords? (coughs) Folks, let us endure the hardship for the gospel now so that we can be assured to reign with him when he returns. The fourth reason why we need to remember Jesus Christ is that these truths are, we see there at the end of that, um, end of verse 8, according to my gospel. According to my gospel. Now this does not mean that Paul invented the gospel, that he had a little personal gospel of his own and other people had other gospels. There were other gospels. Every other gospel apart from Paul's gospel was false gospel. Paul makes that quite clear in other parts of his letters. What this means here by Paul saying my gospel is that the gospel of truth was uniquely revealed directly to Paul from the risen Lord Jesus. It was personally entrusted to him. 
The gospel became his treasure. It was the treasure. It was the good deposit that we read back in chapter 1 and verse 14 of this letter. This treasure is what Paul was to guard at all costs. And this gospel that was revealed to him by Jesus Christ, it became his purpose for living and even for dying. You see, Paul was an apostle, which simply means a sent one, a one who was on a mission. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We have that in 2 Timothy 1.1. So he was uniquely appointed to receive this gospel revelation from God and he was also uniquely appointed to proclaim it to Jews and Gentiles when he was alive. So what we can learn from this is if you want to endure to the end of the Christian race and finish well and to stand firm for the truth, even through hardship and even persecution, you must be able to say with personal conviction and truth, The gospel revealed to the Apostle Paul is also my gospel. It's also my gospel. Can you say that? This is what I hold to and believe in. This is what my life and death stand upon. You need to remember that it is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are saved and that personal faith in this good news brings salvation for believing sinners. You need to own that. To endure hardship, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. My second point this morning is, is do it, to endure hardship, be motivated by God's powerful word. You see this in verse 9. And Paul says here, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. You see, the gospel was the reason Paul suffered hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, just like as a criminal. Even though he wasn't a criminal, but he suffered as a criminal. Merely for believing and preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And then he adds that triumphant note at the end, but the word of God is not imprisoned. You see that? This is important. In other words, what Paul wants to do here, he wants to highlight, even though for the gospel's sake I am incarcerated here in this Roman dungeon awaiting my imminent execution, that's okay, I know it's going to happen, but there is nothing in heaven or earth that can shackle and snuff out the all-powerful word of God. That's what he wants to highlight. Through suffering in these woeful conditions, Paul rejoiced in that even though the world could bind and kill him, and it did, like it has many other saints down through the ages, and in the first place, like it did Jesus Christ on the cross, it could never, ever kill or imprison the Word of God. Paul could well have sung like Martin Luther. We sing that song, that hymn of his here now and again when he wrote that hymn, Paul could well have sung this, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. See, down through the ages, over and over, wicked and evil men have murderously endeavoured to kill and annihilate the truth of God's word. We know that, right? And they're still doing it, I might say. But only ever producing the opposite outcome. God's word flourishes. 
It flourishes. It's not inhibited. I was reading a story about John Bunyan. You know John Bunyan who wrote that amazing work, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And he wrote that while he was in prison for, for preaching the gospel in a place called Bedford in England. For centuries, that book that he wrote was second in the sales list to the Bible. But while he was in this cell, it had high walls blocking any sight at all from him seeing outside or from anyone seeing inside. But Bunyan soon learned that these walls were not sound enough or there was obviously a gap higher up. They weren't able to keep in his voice when he preached. And so it's recorded that often hundreds of believers and unbelievers would eagerly gather outside his prison walls while John Bunyan preached the word of God. You see, the word of God, even in that situation, could not be shackled by stone walls or iron bars. My dear people, when all may seem dismal, when all may seem like there is no light at the end of the tunnel, your tunnel, be inspired, be motivated. Remember, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know that text so well, Hebrews 4.12. God of, the word of God is all-powerful. It is never imprisoned. And thirdly, to endure hardship, be inspired by the purpose of God's word. We see this in verse 10. God has a purpose, you know. And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear here that in remembering the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the power of God's word, this gave him every reason to endure all things. These truths concerning Jesus Christ motivated him to willingly endure. But to endure for what? What was, the, what was the content, the reason, the purpose of his enduring? Was it for personal reasons? Was it even for spiritual reasons, like to hear those words in a coming day, well done, good and faithful servant? That's a great thing to, to be inspired by, wasn't it? Well, not here, not, not this time, okay? That's a good and worthy uh, inspirational uh, goal to head for. But on this at this time, time, Paul wasn't wanting to emphasize that. What he was wanting to emphasize is he endures for the primary purpose of God's work on earth. And that is, what was God? What is God's mission? What is God's purpose? It says here, for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see that? This enduring was all about going the full distance for those who were chosen of God but had not yet obtained the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, was going all out and enduring and suffering for whatever was before him, whatever God had there for him, in order for those who were not saved yet to obtain the salvation which is found in Jesus Christ alone. You see, Paul understood that God's mission on earth was to redeem all whom he had chosen from before the foundation of the world that he would be involved in that great divine and sovereign purpose. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted to be involved and in sync with God's purpose. And that's still God's purpose and God's mission, to save his people. 
his chosen, his elect. And we each one should want to be in sync with the purpose of God. Paul understood Jesus' words when he said, No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. John 6, 65. He understood that. Paul also understood and was driven by the words of Jesus in John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but will raise it up on the last day. Paul understood that. And alongside these deep and divine truths, Paul understood and grasped the words of Jesus when he said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He understood that. Paul saw the need for God's elect to obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ. My dear people, whether we like it or not, whether we struggle with it or whether we choose to ignore it, the plain truth of Scripture tells us that God sovereignly chooses those who will come to faith in him. And here we see that Paul was enduring suffering because of God's sovereign choosing of his elect. But at the same time, he was also suffering, like Peter, and also reflecting the heart of God, Paul was not wishing that any would perish, but that all might come to him in repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. So what does he do? He got kind of a two-sided coin here. What does he do? Paul preached and suffered. He preached and suffered and endured. He preached and suffered and endured to his very death. He evangelized and endured the fallout. He would not stop. Why? Because he knew that there was no salvation in anywhere else but in Jesus Christ alone. In fact, we cannot... The fact that we cannot get our heads around, I call it a double-edged sword, as it were, where he predestines his elect based on his own purpose and will, purely. The fact that we cannot get our heads around that, and at the same time, man has to be responsive and needs to be responsive with faith, and repentance to obtain salvation, the fact that we cannot get our heads around reconciling these two does not in any way invalidate the effect of God's grand purpose. It does not. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. You see, it's not God's grace based on man's choice. Paul understood that God before the foundation of the world, did the choosing and the electing. And Paul's responsibility was to get on and do God's business. And yet, God sovereignly demands faith to make his gracious call effective. Isn't it wonderful? I love it. And Paul went all out. He went all out to endure and align himself with God's redemptive work on earth through the gospel. And Paul, being Timothy's example and our example, is saying, God sovereignly calls all those who are to be saved to be witnesses to those who are not. So why? That they may also obtain salvation. 
Folks, we need to be motivated by God's grand and eternal purpose of saving his elect for their eternal glory. Fourthly, to endure hardship, we must remember God's promises are trustworthy. We see this in the last few verses of 11 to 13. Yeah, they're trustworthy. In this section, we see it as headed up by, it is a trustworthy statement. Uh, this phrase, it is a trustworthy statement, is only found here in First and Second Timothy and Titus, nowhere else in the New Testament. Uh, it's a statement that emphasizes a certain truth that was accepted um, and commonly held by the early church or those who were gathered. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was so accepted that some translators uh, record this in our Bible, that maybe in your Bible, kind of indented as a piece of poetry or, or a hymn. Some even suggest that this was a hymn that was sung in the church. That may well have been the case. But the gist of this trustworthy statement is centered on four promises. Four promises where we see two positive outcomes and two negative outcomes. So it's pretty easy to follow. And each of the four promises begins with an if clause, I-F, which is followed by the consequences of different actions. The first two refer to those who are faithful. They result in living and reigning with Christ. Now the context of First and Timothy leads us to understand that to die here is not... We have back in Romans to die with Christ. We're talking about spiritual death. It's like we recognize in baptism, etc. We've died with Christ, we've risen. But the context of even First and Second Timothy would, would suggest here that to die here is physical death, like dying the death of a martyr for the cause of the gospel. And so the promise of these faithful believers who died with him, these martyrs will also live eternally with the Lord Jesus. We have the same idea in James 1.12, they'll receive a crown of life. Revelation 2.10, same idea, a martyr's crown or a martyr's reward. Or those who suffer and persecution will receive this crown of life. But then we see in verse 12 that not all are called to martyrdom. Other believers, like I would suggest most of us here in this country, in this building, may not be called to die directly in the cause and for the sake of the gospel. It could easily happen. I'm not saying it will never happen, but we do see it happening in other lands where persecution is severe and heavy and saints lose their lives. We know there's numbers of Australians have died in that cause. I'm thinking of the father and two sons who were burned to death in their cars by extremist Hindus because they were up there doing mission work in northern India. Um, and there are others whom you can call to mind. So it may not necessarily be us, but we are called to endure difficulties. We all have difficulties at varying levels. But we're called to endure persecution and, and for those who do endure, for those who, who, who dig in and stand firm, they are promised that we will also reign with him. Now, this is not a condition on salvation. It's not saying that, okay, you will be saved if you do this and this and this and this. It's not saying that. So this 
enduring, this persevering in the faith, it does not protect or secure our salvation. We've already sung that. Once we come to know Jesus Christ and trust him through faith, uh, and uh, we are eternally God's. We're in the hollow of his hand. He will never let us go. To endure or persevere here is the outworking of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Genuine faith and trust. We are new creatures. We have, a cha- we have changed from within. We are given a new heart. And with that new heart, with that divine change that God has wrought in us, it will produce something. And one of the things it will produce is perseverance and enduring in the faith. It demonstrates a true heart change that God has wrought in our lives. That's what it's talking about here. And so the next two promises are in the negative. The next two promises are in the negative. And they concern those who deny Christ or are faithless. And the result is dire consequences. This denial here is to be understood as a blatant turnaround where the professing Christian considers the cost of following the Lord just far too high, it's too demanding, and so they pull back and they fail to endure in the Christian wraith and they go the other way. They reject everything that they learnt and know, etc., etc., and they pursue their own selfish course and their pleasures in life or whatever they may be. This is what this is about. This person chooses to deny and and he defaults on his confession of faith, proving what? That he never belonged to the Lord in the first place. In other words, they were mere fans and not true followers of Jesus Christ. A little bit like those disciples in the Lord's Day, remember? In John 6 and 66. When he started teaching about his blood and his body, etc., etc., he said... They were those who withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Many who withdrew and not walking with him anymore. In other words, the price even for them were too high, and so they chose to walk the other way. This is not like Peter, which some of you will be thinking, and you say, well, what about Peter? He denied the Lord, denied him three times. This is not like Peter's denial, or like we all do from time to time, right? When our faith grows weak and, and because of circumstances and our fear of mankind or fear of being ridiculed or, or whatever, um, where we fail to confess and proclaim Christ as we should. I, I think we're all guilty to some level of that. This is not about that. Why do I know that? Because look at Peter. Remember what Peter did? As soon as he denied the Lord and the Lord looked at Peter... What was his response? He went out and he wept bitterly with tears of repentance. And after he denied the Lord, his, we know that the Lord met up with him and restored him. John twenty-one eighteen refers to that. You see, Peter's heart was still right with the Lord, but in this momentary time of weakness and the fear of man, and in Peter's case, it was a, a young girl who challenged him and he folded. Peter was truly repentant. And so this is why it is necessary for genuine repentance and confession to be part and parcel of our lives. 
because genuine repentance and confession of our sin, I would suggest on a daily basis, it displays something. It displays genuine faith. It displays genuine faith. I wonder if we do that. I wonder if we're involved in that. We can just sort of measure ourselves. Oh, wow, uh, have I returned? Am I just going through the motions here? Um, am I one who is characterized by a person who is permanently denying or rejecting all that I know about Jesus Christ? Maybe you're not in the faith at all. I would suggest that you need to look seriously. And for those who us are believers, are we in the spiritual discipline and practice of ongoing repentance and confession before the Lord because it displays genuine faith. It doesn't make us saved but it is indicative of a true believer. So in closing please note the serious of the final promise here. If we are faithless he, that is Jesus Christ, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. You see that? In other words, if we do not have personal saving faith in Jesus Christ, be assured of this, be assured of this, that just as the Lord will never renege to save those who trust him, he will also never renege on his promise to eternally condemn those who do not. That's a serious and dire consequence to be in. The Lord is faithful to what he has said, to his promises. He cannot deny himself. He cannot turn around and go soft. Justice is justice. And sin has been dealt with at Jesus Christ and the cross. And if we don't come to him in faith and repentance, we will suffer the consequences. So I cast in closing, what motivates you amidst the difficult and trying circumstances? What motivates you? And every single believer has some kinds of difficulties and trying circumstances in their lives. What motivates you? May it be remembering Jesus Christ and also God's powerful word. Never forgetting God's purpose on earth and also his trustworthy promises. So may we be encouraged with that and motivated with these things as we uh, pursue holiness in Christ's likeness. While our musicians come up, we're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. And it's one we've sung a few times before. And it's called, Teach Me Thy Way, O God. The first verse goes like this, Teach my, me thy way, O Lord. Teach me thy way. Thy guidance, grace afford. Teach me thy way. Help me walk aright, more by faith and less by sight. Lead me with heavenly light. Teach me thy way. Thank you.